The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 265. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. Find all my social media buttons at BrianMcClanahan.com. That's B R I O N McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Don't forget to support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com, where it's always free to enroll, and also to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. Okay, all that said, let's talk about the topic of the day, which is Civil War. Now, uh, I sent out an email yesterday on this particular topic, and if you're not on my email list, you need to get on that. So there's a poll out. And uh, this is a piece in the Washington Examiner that I'm going to read. It's very short. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, an essay in a very important book that um, unfortunately didn't get a lot of uh, traction. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a collection of essays from a conference in 2010. And uh, what one of my colleagues had to say about this particular issue. But uh, this, uh, this article, again, Washington Examiner, uh, published on October 23rd by Paul Bedard, and the title is Battleground, 7 in 10 Say U.S. on the Edge of Civil War. So first of all, let me just say something about that. I think that term civil war is thrown around far too flippantly, and I don't think Americans are particularly uh, aware of what that means and how dangerous that is, and um, how nasty that would actually be. I mean, thankfully, I don't believe Americans have the stomach for this, and they shouldn't have the stomach for this. It's a very nasty thing to say. Uh, but this highlights the growing problem of nationalism, and I've talked about that over and over again on this particular uh, podcast. It's why my slogan is Think Locally, Act Locally, because that would solve all of these problems. And it's highlighted in this piece. People just don't even realize it. And then again, I'm going to talk about what uh, my colleague Don Livingston has to say about this. But anyways, uh, from the piece, political partisan division and the resulting incivility has reached a low in America, with 67% believing that the nation is nearing civil war, according to a new national survey. First of all, two problems with that. We've got nation and national. We don't have a nation in America. We never have. We don't have a national government. We never have. Now, I know the central authority likes to promote that. And of course, this makes Washington politicians very powerful. And Dr. Livingston brings that up in his essay. There's a reason why they want you to believe we have a national government and a nation's capital and a national identity and all these other things, because it gives them tremendous authority. But they don't really have it um, if we actually followed the Constitution as written and if the states actually grew a backbone and stood up to it. But anyways, I continue from the piece. The majority of Americans believe that we are two-thirds of the way to being on the edge of civil war. To me, that to me is a very pessimistic place. 
said the executive director of Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. And worse, he said, in announcing the results of the Institute's battleground poll civility survey, the political division is likely to make the upcoming 2020 presidential race the nastiest in modern history. Now, of course, we've had some really nasty elections before, uh, but saying modern history qualifies it. I don't know. I mean, we've had some pretty nasty elections in modern history, too, but um, I do think that we're more divided now than we ever have been before, and there's a way to solve that problem, and we'll get into that with um, Dr. Livingston's essay. Highlighting findings that show voters angered with compromise and growing unfavorable ratings of President Trump and most 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, he said the poll paints a scenario, a picture of highly negative campaign that will continue to exacerbate the incivility of our public discourse. He added it will be a sort of race to the bottom, or has the potential to be a race to the bottom. The civility poll is an offshoot of the famous bipartisan battleground poll conducted by Democratic pollster Celinda Lake of the Lake Research Partners and Ed Geese, I guess is how you say it, of the Terrence Group. While it found that 87% are frustrated with the rudeness in political today, it also revealed that the public really isn't interested in traditional compromise. For example, a nearly equal 84% said that they are tired of leaders compromising my values and ideals. So this is the key to the poll. So people are saying, my gosh, we've got a civil war coming. But yet 84% say we don't want to give up our positions. We're not willing to compromise with those jokers over there, whether they're on the left or the right. And this is the issue. Why aren't they willing to compromise? Because we, if we have a national government, that means you lose. We can have 50 plus 1% govern the other 50%, essentially, 49.99999%. I mean, this is, this is tyranny by any other name, by any other definition. That is tyranny. This is what John Stuart Mill said, the tyranny of the majority. I mean, he's the one that coined the phrase, essentially. We've had other people talk about it in America with John Randolph of Roanoke. He called it King Numbers. Democracy as the problem. Democracy is dangerous because democracy produces these kind of things. Now, uh, if you have democracy with checks, which would be essentially the states, you could function more effectively. But we don't have a national government. We don't have a democracy. We don't have any of those things. But this is what politicians like to tell you because, again, it gets them power. It seems to me that what we're saying is, I believe in common ground. It's just the common ground is where I'm standing. As soon as you move over to where I am, we'll be on common ground. And I think that's what a lot of Americans say. Ghost pointed to the poor favorable ratings of presidential candidates and said that 2020 may be a race, a rare race between candidates that less than half the country likes. There's, a, there's going to be a large body of voters who dislike both of them. That's going to be the swing vote in the election, which means it dictates the kind of campaign that's run. He said, Lake agreed that the national division is widening. widening. There's a relative consensus that divisions in this country are getting worse, she said in her memo accompanying the survey released Tuesday. Both pollsters noted that the public blamed social media, the news media, and President Trump for the growing division. So this is all President Trump's fault. <laughs> um, 
I, this is this is how shallow American politics actually are. Uh, there's a stupid little video of Joe Biden out there saying, "If you elect me, I'm gonna be tough on Putin. I'm gonna. He knows that if he elects me, uh, as he's got his his eyes peeled back from uh, plastic surgery and everything else that he's done. Yeah, Joe Biden's really tough as he lies constantly. I mean, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the quintessential liar. Uh, anyone that ever lived in Delaware any time, and of course. I grew up there at any time, knows that Joe Biden consistently lies. That's his M.O. So um, while, while Trump is often painted as the liar and um, you know Trump is corrupt, so is everybody else in D.C. Joe Biden was in D.C. for 30 plus years. You don't think that man's corrupt? I mean, it's ridiculous. Um but Gase, not a fan of the president's, said he believes that Trump didn't start the rudeness in today's politics. I mean, my gosh, an honest person. He's a symptom of where we are, not the disease, he said, adding, one of the things that I focus on as we have gone into this death spiral of incivility in the country, that we had to be at a certain point for Trump to become acceptable. Trump is a symptom of the disease, but he doesn't pinpoint the proper disease. That proper disease is nationalism. That is the disease. The poll backs that up. It found that 84% believe that the behavior that behavior that used to be seen as unacceptable is now accepted as normal behavior. Oh my gosh, that is the culture war in America, is it not? This is something Pat Buchanan pointed out in 1992 that we're facing a culture war. It doesn't just it's not just political acceptability. It's all kinds of things that we used to consider unacceptable are now acceptable. That's because we have a country of children, essentially. We have, we have created an environment where the values of children are now, first and foremost, the values of adults. And this is a real problem because children throw fits they pout, they whine. I mean, look, that's what the modern left is. And the modern right is that way too in some ways. Um, I think there are a few more adults on the right than on the left. But when you get to D.C., they don't really worry about those things anymore. It's always just about the next election. And this is, again, the real problem in America. It's always going to be about that. For a variety of reasons, it's always going to be about that. The most important reason is that they believe that we have a national government and that national government is going to divvy up the spoils. And those spoils are to the tune of trillions of dollars. And they're just going to kick the can down the road, continually kick the can down the road because it's not politically popular to make tough choices. Now, the left is willing to do it, but not in a productive or long-term sustainability way. They're willing to make tough choices to use other people's money to get what they want. And the left is almost always on point with what they're trying to do. The right will campaign on certain things, or at least what are called the right, will always campaign on cutting taxes or cutting spending or getting rid of Obamacare, whatever it is. And then they never do it. Why? Because that's not politically popular. They realize that the welfare state has become so ingrained in American society that when you talk about reducing these things, you create a problem politically for yourself. 
The only way to solve this monstrosity, this real issue in America, this real problem in America, is to decentralize. Because decentralization would take the money out of D.C. And this is essentially what the founding generation wanted. I mean, this is why the Constitution was designed the way that it was, where the states were actually the fourth leg of the stool. You had the three branches of government, and then you had the states. And the states, as was pointed out over and over again in the Philadelphia Convention, were the most important part of the document. It was even pointed out by Alexander Hamilton when he's arguing for ratification, and James Wilson, who was arguing for ratification, that the states were the most important part of the document. These are the two, two of the most ardent nationalists you would find in America who are saying, no, 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 you can't destroy the states. The states are essential. But what we've done in America is destroy the states. We've destroyed the states, not literally, but uh, figuratively, by creating the administrative state in Washington, D.C. This is the real problem. We've got an out-of-control central government. We have this term nation thrown around. We have a population that knows they don't want to be governed by the 50 plus 1 percent, whichever majority that is. We have a population on the right that doesn't want to be governed by California and on the left that doesn't want to be governed by Texas or Alabama. And so herein lies the problem with American politics. There's a solution for all of this. And in my newest class at McClanahan Academy, United States History, 1865 to the present, in the last unit, I point this out. There's three ways forward. There's globalism, which is extreme uh, subjection to the central authority, but a central authority not of our making. And this is what most of the elites want. They want a global entity, whether it's on climate or uh, human rights, whatever it is, whatever leftist phrase they want to throw around out there. And then you have the nationalists, which are people like Trump, which are living in a post-World War II world. Right after World War II, we had this American nation. We're all together. It's rah-rah. Uh, wave the U.S. flag and everything's great. Lee Greenwood. You have that side, which again is problematic because it contributes to extreme angst on both sides. If, if you're in favor of that and you're not in power, well, then you're in trouble. If you're not in favor of it, um, well, then what are you going to do about it? Um, so, And then the last is localism. And this is think locally, act locally. This is decentralization. It is the only way forward in America with a government like we have, a central authority that's so corrupt, a presidency that has so much power, a Congress that's willing to do nothing, and a Supreme Court that has become the final arbiter of everything. The only way forward is for the states and the people of the states, most importantly, to stand up and say enough is enough on both the left and the right and say we're actually going to have policies that reflect the political culture of our state. And before I get into that, there's a message from our sponsor. All right, welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. And let's talk about this book that I mentioned earlier. It is Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century by Don Livingston, or edited by Don Livingston. This came. Uh, this book was produced because of a conference in 2010 in Charleston, South Carolina, that featured Dr. Livingston, among others. And the topic was decentralization. Um, it had 
participants from both the left and the right there. The late Thomas Naylor presented Kirkpatrick Sale on the left. You also had, of course, Dr. Livingston, Yuri Maltsev, um, Ken Ma Kent Masterson-Brown, Marshall DeRosa. Um, it was a very good conference. And uh, this book is the product of that conference. And I attended. The uh, Larry Reed was there. Um, it was by far one of the best conferences on the topic I've ever attended. And uh, Dr. Livingston wrote the introduction, The Old Assumptions No Longer Apply. And I want to read some of this because um, he's correct about things. Um, he says, One topic is seldom mentioned, much less explored, and that is the question of size and scale. Leopold Kor once observed that when things go wrong in the human world, it is often because something has grown too large. As Aristotle taught, everything in nature has a proper size, beyond or below which it becomes dysfunctional. A jury of 12 is well suited in size to determine the facts of a case, but a jury of 120 would be dysfunctional. At that size, not everyone would be able to speak and answer challenging questions put to them by other jurors. The same holds for the functioning of other social entities, such as committees, lawmaking assemblies, and bureaucracies, and the ratio of population to representation. None of these can function well if they are too large or out of scale. It should be surprising that the topic of size and scale is dropped out of political discourse, since Americans think of the United States as a republic, and the Republican tradition for 2,000 years taught that a republic must be small. To think of the United States itself as a republic would mean consolidating the states into a single unitary state. Thomas Jefferson viewed this prospect with horror. In a letter to Gideon Granger, August 13, 1800, he warned, quote, Our country is too large to have all its affairs conducted by a single government. Public servants at such a distance and from under the eye of their constituents must, from circumstances of distance, be unable to administer and overlook all details necessary for the good government of the citizens and the same circumstances by rendering detection impossible to their constituents will invite the public agents to corruption, plunder, and waste. And I do verily believe that in the, if the principle were to prevail of a common law being enforced in the United States, it would become the most corrupt government on the earth. Have we not reached that condition today where the states are considered little more than administrative units of the central government? Nearly every aspect of life is under regulation to the central government. A lawmaking majority in Congress, along with the president, is only 269. That small number rules 305 million people and will spend an annual budget of $3.84 trillion. That, along with a deficit of over $1 trillion and some, is some $5 trillion. If $1 million a day were spent from the time of Christ and now, it would never equal $1 trillion, let alone $5 trillion. And so he questions, I mean, this is what it's all about, the spoils. How can we have a government function properly when they're spending $5 trillion and there's only 269 people to do that? I mean, it is an impossibility. But there is more. Most of the laws we live under are not passed by Congress at all, but flow from anonymous regulatory bureaucracies of continental scale that are under the control of an imperial president. The EPA, the EEOC, the IRS, the FCC, the FDIC, the FDA, not to mention the presidential czars. But the presidency is not the only extra legislative body that makes laws. 
The Supreme Court has become the most important social policy-making body in the union. So, I mean, he's exactly right about this. This is why I wanted to read parts of this essay, because it succinctly, it succinctly and concisely points out the problem. We've got a body of central authority, as Jefferson said, that's too big and too corrupt. And then he says, George Kennan divides the union. From the late 19th century on, ever-increasing centralization and the hollowing out of state and local power were considered progressive, not only in America, but throughout the West. But after two world wars, the global Cold War, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and the rise of globalist ideology, the merits of such centralization began to be challenged. One of these challenges came from George Kennan, architect of the United States policy to contain the Soviet Union. Kennan is known for his realism and moderation in foreign policy and described by some as the conscience of America. In a chapter titled Dimensions in his autobiography Around the Caged, I'm sorry, Around the Caged Hill, Kennan argued that the United States has become simply too large for the purposes of self-government. The central government can rule 305 million people only by imposing one-size-fits-all rules that necessarily result in the diminished sensitivity to, of its laws and regulations to the particular needs, traditional, ethnic, cultural, linguistic, and the like of individual localities and communities. So Kennan is pointing out why nationalism is dangerous. The sheer size of the United States has encouraged an abstract ideological scale, a style of politics that favors universalist, egalitarian solutions applying across the board to all elements of the population. Kennan continues, particularly is this true of the United States with its highly legalistic traditions, its dislike of any sort of discriminating administration, its love for dividing people into categories, its fondness for regulating their lives in terms of these categories and treating them accordingly, rather than looking at the needs of individuals or a smaller groups and confronting these on the basis of common sense and reasonable discrimination. You can't use that word discrimination, though, because that would be sacrilege to the progressive left. Livingston continues, Congress is more interested in the struggle over how to spend $5 trillion in a single year than in tackling politically controversial issues and has turned these over to the federal courts. The Constitution reserves the regulation of abortion, for example, to states, each of which could and did for 177 years, adjust its regulations to suit the moral requirements of its political society. But through a fanciful reading of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, we get incorporation. Constitutional rights are and should be rigid, things that cannot be easily adjusted to local traditions and circumstances. Politi policies, however, are contingent adventures in trying to establish what is thought to be good. Uh, so, uh, he says, the regime of government by judiciary, as law professor Raul, Ber Raul Berger calls it, is unique in history. A similar rigidity is to be found in the regulatory agencies under the presidency. Rarely, if ever, Kennan concludes, can the workings of the federal laws be adjusted to meet unusual but reasonable requirements of the affected locally or individual. Locality or individual, excuse me. So, uh, Livingston concludes, the topic of size race here is not to be confused with the way the term is used today in ordinary American political discourse. Their one here is invective against big government, of reducing the size of government, or of limiting government. These expressions usually mean limiting the increase in government spending, or much less often reducing the government's budget, or reducing its functions, or reducing the size of its bureaucracy. 
Cannon, however, means something quite different. He means a territorial division of the Union into a number of smaller political societies. If the regime has grown too large with respect to population and territory, it should be divided. But he is quick to add that it should not be done unless people see the advantage of it and really want it. This end, he thinks we should begin a public debate on size and scale and how we might downsize a regime that has grown simply too large for the purposes of self-government. So this is where we can have a conversation about federalism, about thinking locally and acting locally, about, for example, the Tenth Amendment Center, which does a very good job in promoting that constitutional function that is there, that mechanism called the Tenth Amendment. Now, the problem with the Tenth Amendment is it doesn't have any teeth. We can scream about the Tenth Amendment all day, but how are we going to enforce that? Well, it's enforced by people essentially ignoring unconstitutional federal laws. Now, when the laws operate on individuals, that becomes a real challenge. For example, if we consider uh, taxes, a certain tax to be unconstitutional, well, it would take a massive political uprising of individuals. It would have to be so large that the general government could not prosecute everyone for not paying that tax. Therein lies part of the problem. When you have a government that operates on individuals, collective action becomes necessary. And as the state, if the state says, all right, we're not going to enforce, for example, Obamacare in the state, well, what happens when all these individuals have to file their taxes and they have to pay a federal tax, a mandate, so to speak, for carrying insurance? Now, we know that the central authority has said we're not going to enforce that right now, but that's just right now. If Donald Trump's not in office... That's going to come back. People will have to have some t- pay some type of tax if they don't have health insurance. This is just a reprieve from that. Um, so we have a situation where it's very difficult to use the states when you have laws operating on individuals like they do, to use the states as the mechanism to oppose those things. So then you have to start talking about uh, other ways to oppose this stuff. And this is where Americans are saying, well, we're just going to go to civil war. Again, dangerous thing. Not something we should even want. Not something we should even talk about. I mean, as a historian, civil war is the worst thing that anyone can mention. And I don't think, again, Americans really have stomach for this. Uh, they're more interested in Twitter civil wars, where you go on and you make fun of somebody or say, I don't believe in what you think and you're an idiot. Uh, this is what people mean. But at the end of the day, what we're what we are doing is dividing out into our own local communities, our own tribes, as people call it now. And uh, we're trying to find like-minded people. And maybe it's going to be through geographic redeterminism. We're going to have people moved here. I mean, look, California is becoming so far left, any leftist should just move to California. And then maybe California leaves the Union. I mean, wouldn't that be great? The United States would be a lot better for it. Maybe we need to have a discussion about these things, dividing This is what the agrarians mentioned in I'll Take My Stand. Maybe we need regional governments. Maybe we need a a discussion of a new type of constitutional order. Maybe the Constitution has grown ineffective. Of course, I believe it has, I mean, because the Congress ignores it. Maybe we need constitutional amendments. Maybe we need something else out there, some type of legislative authority that says, nope, that law is unconstitutional, it can't be passed. Maybe we need some oversight. Until then, though, we're going to have this nasty divide in America because we have people believing we're an American nation. But we know it's not. We know it's not true. Anytime you define that nation, define what a nation actually is, I do it every semester in my classes. Students say, my gosh, we don't really have a nation, do we? 
then why do we use the term national nation? Well, because we say it in the Pledge of Allegiance, because this is what we've been taught to do, because we have a national anthem, we have a nation's capital. It's just preposterous to think that that's actually true. It's a relic of World War II. It's not a relic of the founding generation. There were those that were nationalists there, but they were defeated in Philadelphia. They were um, in the minority in the United States in 1788 and 1789. And unfortunately, we've gotten to a point where that national idea, because of the victory in 1865, has become so ingrained in American society, we don't know any other way out. Which is why, if you listen to this podcast and you believe in that think locally, act locally, which, by the way, the progressive left, as I've talked about, is starting to do, they're just starting to pump money into local elections because they realize that's how they affect the most change. You've got to get out and get involved in your local elections. School board, city council, county, county commissions, whatever it is, get out there and get involved. Make a difference there. Get get some like-minded people. They're out there in your community. 20 people or 100 people at a city council meeting is much more effective than 100 people in Washington, D.C. But this is where we're, this is what we're doing now. This is why this conversation needs to happen. It's what Dr. Livingston was perfectly correct about in this book. We have to have the conversation. As George Kennan was saying, we have to have the conversation. Until we have that conversation as mature adults, and we have to get rid of this faux, quote-unquote, patriotism, which is really just nationalism. We have to get rid of it and start to say, you know what? It might be better to live and let live. It might be better to let California be California and Alabama be Alabama and Massachusetts be Massachusetts. Those things would be better off because we could peacefully coexist. I mean, the, the left likes to talk about coexistence, but they really don't want to coexist with the right, which is fine. Let them live in their own states. And the right, people on the right can let the left live in their own states. And we can vote with our feet and do these kind of things. That would be the ideal situation. That would be thinking locally and acting locally. That would be the peaceful way to go about solving this massive problem in American society. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>